that very much. All right, Galatians chapter 5 is where we will be this evening as we jump back into this study together as been going through it on Wednesday evenings. And I looked back when we first started it, and it looks like about June of last year is when we started it, coming up on close to a, a year in this little book of the Bible, and I uh, did not think it would take that long. And so if this study bores you to tears, forgive me, all right? But uh, don't tell me either. But, uh, uh, but anyway, I hope you learned at least something out of it. And we're quickly coming to the end. We'll, we're almost going to be finished with chapter 5 this evening. Probably take us one more Wednesday to get through it. But uh, we'll, and we'll be into the last chapter in, uh, in the next couple of weeks. All right? But Galatians chapter 5 is where we'll be. And uh, we'll look at here in just a minute at verse number, uh, verses number 22 through, 20, through 26. But before we get there, just be reminded about this book of the Bible, of why it was written. Remember, in the context here... We have, uh, we have what has been, what we know as Judaizers, false teachers that have made their way, infiltrated the area of Galatia into the churches and into uh, the believers here as far as teaching them another gospel, as Paul called it, teach, teaching them another gospel. But this was a false gospel of adding works to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we know that there is no other gospel than one gospel. The gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is none other. But they were teaching a different one. They were saying it's fine to have Jesus plus. It's fine to have Jesus, but you need to add this to it. It's fine for all that. But listen, that's another gospel. It's false. It's wrong. Please be reminded that salvation is God's free gift to us and is given by grace and accepted by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ and this little book of the Bible should defend and declare that very fact. Never forget it. All right. So that's what's going on. But as of late, we've been looking really at this kind of um, uh, heading, if you will, as we came to Galatians chapter five, verse number seven. When Paul said this to the Galatians, he said, "You did run well. Who did hinder you? You did run well. Who did hinder you?" Now we know there's all kind of hindrances to our race as believers, but the ones we have looked at more specifically in the context of this, uh, of this book of the Bible here, is, uh, are these. We know that they were being disobedient to the truth. We know that overall, overall there's false doctrine that was creeping into this area. Uh, we would seem there was some division beginning to take place in the churches of Galatia. And uh, it would seem that because of that, they were devouring one another. And we found all of that even in this chapter alone in chapter number 5. But it, was, it would seem as a whole this was taking place in the churches and amongst the believers of Galatia. But Paul didn't stop there. He didn't just point out a problem. No, he began to tell them how to overcome it. He began to teach them how to combat, if I can say it that way, how to combat these hindrances to their race. And this is how we combat it. We know how we can combat some divisions and devouring one another. We saw this already several Wednesdays ago, and that is this way. Serve one another. We've got to serve each other. We have to. That's the way to combat division. That's the way to combat biting one another, devouring one another, bickering back and forth to one another. You serve one another, you'll stop doing that. You'll stop doing that, and your race will not be hindered, at least that way. Serve one another. Do it willingly and do it lovingly. And then we saw this one. We began to really dive into this one. 
which really is the main way, by the way, to combat the hindrances in our race. And it's this way, by walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit. Now, as we've been looking at this verse and phrase as of late, of walk in the Spirit, we've taken so far, taken note of at least, that walking in the Spirit is not a suggestion. It's not a provoked. No, no, no. For the believer, this is a what, church? Command. It's a command. We've been commanded by God to do just, just that, to walk in the Spirit. Remember, walking is not talking about an action or just a, an action of motion or putting one foot in front of the other, not just movement, right? No, walking in the Spirit, it goes along the lines of this, how we conduct ourselves, how we behave ourselves, how we live our lives as believers. How should we do it? By walking in the Spirit. Live our lives by the Holy Spirit, being led of the Holy Spirit. And of course, that's being led through the Word of God and through prayer. Because listen, the Holy Spirit will never lead you to live outside what the Bible teaches. Never, not one time. Not one time can somebody say, yes, God led me to do this, and it's in, it's in contrary to the Word of God. No, God didn't lead you to do that. Your stinking flesh did, all right? So keep that in mind. <clears throat> keep that in mind. We're to walk in the Spirit. Again, it's a command. Then we saw all the conflict because we understand that for the believer, it can be hard. We know that uh, we believe at least every genuine believer, every genuine Christian wants to do right. Right? Want to do right? Amen. We want to do what's right. But who here finds it time to time hard to do what's right? Is it just me or is it good? I'm glad I'm not the only one. I find it hard from time to time because why? Well, there's a conflict. There's a conflict between the sinful nature we were born with, that is the flesh, and a conflict between the flesh and the Holy Spirit we were born again by. There's the conflict there. For every born-again believer, there's a battle between the flesh and the Spirit. Even Paul himself struggled with this. You can see it in Romans chapter number 7. But be reminded, in this conflict, the one that will win is the one that you will feed. So if you want to be carnal and fleshly and do the things that your sinful nature wants you to do, then feed that side of yourself. But if you want to live and walk in the Spirit, then feed that side more. How do you do that? Be in your Bible. Read it. Study it. Obey it. Be in prayer and fellowship with God, fellowship with other believers, being faithful to, to assemble together. This, all of this and more will feed, will feed that spirit, and the spirit will win in those conflicts. So the one that wins is the one you feed. And again, that choice is up to us. Before we go any further, let me ask you again, which one has been winning lately? Answer that to yourself. Because the one that's been winning lately is the one you've been feeding lately. It happens because of the conflict. But then we begin to see this. We not only see the command and the conflict, but we see the crop of this as well. And there's two crops we began to look at. The first one was this. It is the works of the flesh. And we saw this in verses 18 through 20, uh, 21. We see the works of the flesh there. And be reminded, the works of the flesh is absolutely rotten. And it stinks, all right? And it's just absolute destructive. And you can find all of these works of the flesh. And it's not the only ones, by the way, because Paul made it known there's many more when he says, and such like, in verse 21. 
But these are evident, these are manifest, made known, clearly seen works of the flesh as he lists them here for, for us. And if we walk in the flesh, this is how we'll behave. This will be the fruit of, this will be the works of, this will be the outcome of living and walking in, in the flesh. But there's some other fruit is where I really want to get to this evening. Another crop, if you will, that we need to take note of. And it's this fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And this fruit, this is the fruit we want. This is the fruit that every believer needs to have produced in their lives. This is the fruit. This is the fruit we need. So let's look at it together in Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Now as we come to this section of this, uh, of this crop, if you will, as we come here, Paul begins to describe the fruit of the Spirit. But just before he does, he starts off with this very, it's a small word, but it's a very mighty word, and it's this word. Look at verse number 22, and the very first word of verse 22 is what, church? It is but. That is a good word. I am thankful for that word. If you go over to Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, uh, verses uh, 1 through 10 there, in the very first few verses of it, it talks about how we were wicked, dead in our sins and trespasses, but then the Bible says this, but God was rich in mercy. I'm thankful we can find many times in Scripture where, where the Bible tells all the bad things, right? And that's, how we, that's another clue how we know it's divinely inspired because who, which one of us would ever tell the bad things about us for everyone to read? No, none of us would, right? But the Bible does. But it doesn't stop with the bad things. It goes on to tell the good things too. It goes on to tell the good things of God how we can have salvation through him. So I'm thankful for this little word that we even find here in verse 22 of, of but. It's a tiny word, but it's a mighty word. And Paul is using it to show a mighty contrast here, okay? But it's a contrast between the flesh, the works of the flesh, and the fruit of, of the Spirit. So Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants to make things very clear that the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit are not coming from the same vine. They're not coming from the same source. Nope, they are completely, listen, completely different as night and day. Understand, someone cannot say when they have been involved in such uh, sins and works of the flesh that are listed in verses 19 through 21 here, they cannot say, well, God made me do it. They cannot say, well, God is okay with me, with me doing this. They cannot say, God led me to do such things that are listed there, of course, in verses 19, 19 through 21. And by the way, if someone does say that God allowed them to do it, or really, I should say, I should say made them to do it, and that God is okay with them doing it, if they say that, they're a liar, I'm telling you. They're lying. God's not okay with that. Now, God didn't make them do it. 
Because those works of the flesh, listen, that's, that's not God's, God's fault, really. That's an accusation they're making to God, or God made me do this. No, 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 no. No, there's individual liberty, and there's individual accountability and responsibility. God didn't make anybody do, do that. God does not give a thumbs up to those things that are, we consider the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh do not spring out of the character of God. Why? Because the works of the flesh... And the works of the Spirit are complete opposite one from another. Totally different fruit. Uh, one's rotten, one's good. One is produced by our fallen nature, and the other by the Holy Spirit that dwells, dwells within us. Remember what the Bible said again in verse number 17. When Paul was writing, after he said, Walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill lust of the flesh. He said in verse 17, For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to another, complete opposite. So that you cannot do the things that, that you would. So he says, listen, there's a great contrast here between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. They're complete opposites. But as we think of the fruit of the flesh, which we talked a lot about last time, and we think of the fruit of the Spirit, I want to dive a little bit deeper into some of, some of the fruit, this cluster, if I can say it that way, keeping the fruit analogy uh, this cluster of fruit together. There's nine elements to it. Uh, I, 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 um, I'm going to try not to say uh, the fruit of love and the fruit, the fruit of joy because when the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit here, it's singular. The fruit, that word fruit is singular there. It's not fruits, plural, but singular. It's all wrapped together. So I'm going to call it elements of the fruit, all right? So I, kinda, I guess how I picture in my mind is like a grape, a cluster of grapes, but it's just one cluster right so that's kind of the analogy at least i'm trying to keep in my mind is i think of the elements of the fruit of the spirit okay so the fruit of the spirit is the first one is this one look at it with me verse number 22 but the fruit of the spirit is what's that word is love that's the first one now it's interesting to me that this will be the first element of the fruit of the spirit but i believe it's to be listed first for a specific reason you say well, what reason is that, preacher? Well, because listen, all the other elements of this fruit that are listed, understand, uh, they, they are an outgrowth, if I can say it that way, of the fruit of love, of this first element of the fruit of the Spirit, of, of love. Because everything else flows from that deep, rich, and fertile ground of true, biblical, right love. Uh, do you remember what Paul said when he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? We call it the love chapter of the Bible. But, uh, but he says this, verse number 1 and through verse number 3. Paul said, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, that's, that's love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have, I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, it sounds real familiar, familiar with, with the words he's using here that uh, are combined in the fruit of the Spirit there, all right? But he says, though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, love, it profiteth me nothing. And then towards the end of that same chapter, in verse 13, he says this, and now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these 
His charity is love. He is saying in the context of this chapter and of these verses in 1 Corinthians 13 that the greatest gift to have, he had a lot of them, prophecy, many of the gifts he had, healing, you know, all these gifts, right? But he said the greatest gift to have, the greatest uh, grace to give, he says this one, is charity. It's real biblical love, true charity. Because all the other elements of the fruit of the Spirit will flow, again, flow from that fertile ground of, of love. Now, most would agree, agree with, that, uh, with this, that, that uh, love is, is, is good, right? As Paul said, it's the greatest of these. I mean, we would agree with that. But the question that we need to answer in respect to the world in which we live today is, well, what is that? What is love? What does that mean? What, what, is, what is love? Now, in the day in which we live, listen, love can be, it can be very confusing for some because the word love, the meaning of it at least, has um, been clouded. It, uh, well, it's just been blurred. People have blurred those lines what real love is. You know, sometimes you tell someone the truth and it's not very favorable truth, they'll call it hate. Did you know that? But a person that tells you the truth is actually someone who actually does love you. That's out of love. But again, those lines can become blurred. And many people, as they, as they become, uh, the word love become clouded in their minds or blurred in their minds, they've equated love with other things that are not real love. They equate love with like. It's not the same thing. Uh, some equate love with lust. That is definitely not the same thing but they blur those lines. For instance, folks will say this, I love ice cream. Amen, me too, right? Especially homemade peach ice cream. You want to make that for me on my birthday? You'll be my favorite person in the whole wide world. All right, amen. But people say, I love ice cream. You can't do homemade peach ice cream. Bluebell butternut crunch is pretty good close second, okay? I love ice cream. Some will say, well, I love my dog. Some folks will say, well, I love my spouse. And some folks will say, well, I love, and you can fill in the blank, right? I'll say, I love fishing. I really enjoy that. I really do. But though we use the same word love in each instance for those, do you think, do you think a person would have the same meaning in each instance? Meaning, I love, I love ice cream the same way I love my spouse. You're like, well, again, this depends on ice cream preacher, <laughs> if we do that or not, but... But no, of course not. I'm using silly illustration. You know what I'm getting at. But it's not the same meaning. We use the same word, but it's not the same, not the same meaning. Though we use the word love in those instances, it's not meant the same way. So when I say the word love has been a little blurred, that's what I'm getting at, right? Now, in the Greek language, there were three words used for love, and of those three, two, you would find in the Greek New Testament that was translated into our English New Testament, all right? But those three Greek words were eros. Now, this is where we get our, our English word, or from our, our, this word, our English word, erotic, okay? So this will be an erotic love. This will be a sensual, lustful love, which is not really a love at all. Now, we don't find this Greek word in the Greek New Testament, but we find these other two. We find this word. We find phileo. Now, we're familiar with this phileo love. This will be a fondness. This will be a, um, 
You're my really good friend type of love, a brotherly type of love. Again, that's where we get the, uh, the city of Philadelphia from, the city of brotherly love. So phileo is a fondness, a brotherly love type, type of love. And then there's this one. This is the real one. This is, this is God's love here. And this is the love of the fruit of the Spirit. It's agape love. Agape is a much deeper love. For this is a holy love. This is a sacrificial love, a godly love, a selfless love. It's a love that's a one-way street. It's a love that you give expecting nothing in return. And it's God's love for you and for me. It's amazing. It's amazing that he would love us with that kind of love, a one-way street kind of love, expecting nothing in return, though he deserves every human being on planet Earth because he loved them and gave his life for them. How shall we know the love of God? Here, committed to the love of God, then that he died for us. That's how we know he loved us. And he deserves every single human being in their hearts and their service. Why? Because this true love it's amazing. We don't deserve it. Can never earn God's love. Never. But He just simply loves us. Because we're so good. <laughs> eh, no. Not at all. Not at all. He loves us in spite of us. Because that's who He is. That's part of God's character. The Bible says God is love. He is love. But one of the best parts about God's love, I think, at least for me, it helps me every time I think about it, is that God loves us in spite of us. In spite of who we are, in spite of what we've done. The Bible says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely, for a righteous man will one die, meaning you know, somebody would die for a good man. Sure, somebody might do that. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth, show, that means, that's, a, that's what that word means. Commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, Christ died for us. It really is amazing to me when I think about it. And as you think about it, let it amaze you. I know you've heard that verse over and over before. And maybe you haven't memorized by now, but let it amaze you every time you think God's love for you it amazes me. Because even in the depths of sin and ungodliness, guess who gets to be the objects and recipients of God's agape, sacrificial, selfless, one-way street, holy love? You and me. It's amazing. But it's this type of love that is the fruit of the Spirit. And as we walk in the Spirit, this will be part of the fruit that will be produced out of our life, love. So Christian, if you want to love like Jesus loves, I hear that. I hear that some and often. and seems as of recent I've heard it. And some people will say that, actually a critic will say that to a Christian, to why don't you love like Jesus loves? Consider the source when you hear that kind of stuff, okay? But, but if we want to love as Jesus loved, you know how we'll do that? By walking in the Spirit. Living 
in the Spirit, being led of the Holy Spirit of God. And when we do, surely we can love as Jesus loved. So we see the first element of this love is this. Number one, we see the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then what's the second one, church? The second, second element of this fruit is this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. That word, next word is what? Joy. Joy. Now, again, this is something that the world has blurred and clouded again, I believe, because the world would take the greatness of joy and couple that, or at least put it on the same playing field with happiness. They would equate the two. Now, uh, these are not exactly the same thing, all right? You see, happiness, I believe, is based on happenings, hence the word. It's based on the circumstances that surround you. Let me ask you a question. Does it make you happy when your bills are paid and then you have a little money left over? Is that not a joy? I should say make you happy, right? That make you happy? Is anybody like that? Just one, two of us, three of us. All right. I like it too, okay? Makes me happy. It's like, oh, yeah, I got some more money for ammo or fishing gear, whatever, you know. It's probably not the wisest thing, but anyway, (laughs) it makes you happy. It makes you happy. Uh, or how about this? When things are going well at home, your kids are behaving, get along with your spouse pretty well, and even your mother-in-law likes you. Does that make you happy? Amen. All right. Surely it does. When the circumstances that surround our life are going well, I would dare say we're pretty happy. But what about when they're not? When things are not going so well, when the circumstances surrounding our life seem to be falling apart, are you Are you happy? Probably not. Probably not so much, at least. But what if I told you, even during that time, when things are falling apart, when there's more bill than money, when the circumstances surrounding your life are just a mess, what if I told you you can still have joy in the midst of all of that? Because I believe, as Christians, as people who know God, we can. We can. Because, listen, our joy as believers is not based on circumstances. That's not where the foundation of joy lies, as happiness does. The foundation of joy does not lie in our circumstances, but it lies in Christ. That's that's where it is. Do you remember what Paul told the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 4? And verse number 4, I'm sure you do. You can probably quote the verse. But it says this, Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice meaning be glad. (laughs) Be glad. Rejoice. Now, one may think that when Paul was addressing the Philippian church, especially in this moment, writing this verse, uh, maybe he was saying it after they had a fantastic meeting together. Had a great meeting, great Lord's Day, great revival meeting. Maybe he said it after many people as he went through the uh, city of Philippi and, and many folks came to know Jesus as Savior and there's a multitude saved. Maybe that's why he said it. Rejoice in the Lord and listen. And when that happens, I promise we will rejoice. Amen. We will be glad. We really will. And no doubt we will do that. But that's not the immediate context, nor listen, the historical context of behind what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 4, verse number 4. Remember the historical context behind that. There was a great persecution taking place under the cruel hand of Nero. We've talked about this before. When A couple years ago we went through that book together. But Nero was a horrendous tyrant who hated Christians and treated them so vile 
and unfair. Not just taking their homes, but he would take their very lives. It was awful. And as the persecution intensified, people were scattered abroad, had to flee their very homeland and country because of the persecution. And even Paul himself at that moment, as he's writing Philippians, he was writing from where? From prison. He's writing from prison. So the historical context, that's what was going on when he was writing. And then the immediate context of Philippians chapter 4, Paul was addressing some potential divisions within the church. Because even in verse number 2 of Philippians 4, it would seem that there were a couple of ladies who were not getting along and began to cause some strife and cause some division. The Bible says, I beseech Euodus and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Meaning, they weren't in the same mind in the Lord. They weren't in agreement at this very moment. That's what that means there. So there had potential of being some great divisions. But Paul said what, nonetheless? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. So when you take the immediate context and historical context of that portion of Scripture in Philippians, would you say that is a very favorable or unfavorable circumstance? Thank you, Mike. Unfavorable. That's right. All right. Unfavorable. <laughs> Those circumstances were terrible. Okay. Horrible. Horrible. But again, Paul knew where their source of joy lies and where it was from. It wasn't in their circumstances. It was in their Christ that they knew. That's where true joy, true joy is found. Again, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Listen, though our circumstances change, please know this, Jesus never does. And therefore, we can't have joy. As long as you understand that happiness and joy are not necessarily the same thing. Happiness changes with the happenings around us. But joy can remain the same because it is part of the element of the fruit of the Spirit. And if we're walking in the Spirit, then listen, from that walk, from that life, guess what should be seen or should be experienced, at least by you, should be joy. Now listen, I know, believers, again, as we consider the conflict of it all, I know we have our moments from time to time I know we have our times, we're not so joyful. You know what, I'm, I'm learning even as a pastor and as a believer. I'm learning that it's okay not to be okay. Alright, just so you know. I know we got good church faces every now and then, and we can speak really good Christianese, but it's okay not to be okay every now and then. But here's what I want to encourage you. Don't stay there. Okay, don't stay there. Don't stay But on the flip side of this as well, I do think that the most joyful people in all the world should be God's people. It should be Christians. And it will be those that are walking in the Spirit. But it should be God's people who are the most joyful people in all the world and the most joyful place that should be in all the world. It should be any assembly where God's people are together. That should be one of the most joyful places in all of the world. It ought to be. 
because it should be there that you can rejoice in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. Where? When you're assembled together. It's okay to rejoice when you hear the Word of God and it's, and it's read and, and something just, just uh, ignites something in your heart and just, and just shows you some blessing from the Word of God, some nugget as we say, and God helps you with it. It's okay to say, oh, thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord. It's okay. And as someone sings a song that lifts up your Savior and it talks about His goodness, His mercy, His grace, this talks about Christ and lifts Him up whole and it stirs your heart, it's okay to say, oh, thank God. What a great God we have. Mighty Savior we serve. It's okay to rejoice, folks. It's okay. And of all the places in all the world where people should be able to rejoice, it should be at church, especially believers. Rejoice in the Lord, it's okay. It's okay to do so. Besides, here's what the Bible says. In Psalm 33, verse 1, Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. You know what the word comely means here? It means this. It means beautiful. Now, I know what you husbands are going to do. You're going to write your wife a card tomorrow. You're going to tell her how comely she is, right? And especially the ones that are here, they're going to know exactly what you're talking about. Right? <laughs> uh, that's what it means. It means, means comely come, means beautiful. But the Lord thinks this is beautiful. What? When we praise Him. When we rejoice in the Lord. Basically, Praising God, rejoicing in the Lord as a believer, no matter the circumstances you're going through, it looks really good on you. It really does. It looks really good. And God is pleased with it. He thinks that's, that's beautiful. So dear Christian, I want to tell you, though you may not be okay, you can still find your joy in the Lord and rejoice in Him. And by the way, it looks really good on you, especially especially those moments when you're not okay. Because there's others that no doubt will be looking and watching. They know, too, that uh, you're not okay and, and things are not all they may seem to be. But when they see you rejoice in the Lord, they see you have something maybe they don't. And it whets their appetite for the Christ you have, the Jesus you know, for them to know Him, too. Because that rejoicing, that being glad in the Lord, it looks really good on you. And I believe it pleases the Lord. And that joy, listen, that joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit. And that's only two elements. I'm out of time, okay? We can stay here for another two hours if you want to. Got 1K, all right. Me and you will stay, all right. But, but it's only two of them. We've got seven more. We'll look at that next time, but, but please know, out of the element of love, all these others will begin to flow as we walk in the 